Apple's uh, compression. I think they probably are they brand new. No, they're actually a refurb. I got them on a Groupon, hundred dollars off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really weird because there was a time when people would wear Bluetooth headsets and they'd be complete douchebags, and it, yes. it was like universally accepted that these guys were douchebags. Yes. And for some reason, now it's cool. Yeah, mm. for sure, for sure. I, I, I still so, feel a little douchey wearing this, but uh, it, it's kind of nice being uh, untethered from the phone. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you, though. I have to see these things because some of them do still look douchey. Are they the ones that connect at the back? Like, are yeah, they yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. like... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not going to say that they're douchey, but um, like... Some of them can look a little douchey. I, I'm sure yours, if they're the Beats ones, look look really good. But um, they, they look they look kind of douchey, man. It's like um, <laughs> I should put glasses on these. Really, is what I should be doing. <laughs> I should put glasses on it because this like lanyard that I have that straps behind my my neck is really the holder for them. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Well, I've got the yeah, I've got the AirPods and. It's crazy. I've seen them everywhere now. Uh, on the train, walking on just like downtown Toronto, I see AirPods everywhere. So they've, I think we're, I think they've gone mainstream. Okay, this is my beef with AirPods, okay? And this is why I kind of like the Beats a little bit more, even though they are a little bit bigger and they have the lanyard that goes on the back, is because the AirPods, they just stick into your ear a little bit. They come down. I guess for the microphone, but you have no idea if you are just listening to music or you're talking to somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like, it feels like you're just walking and talking. And if I'm on the street, I'll think that you're talking to me. And really, you're just talking to somebody else on your phone. And that's kind of douchey. But how is that any different than you wearing the beat stuff? Because it has a bit of a cord there. And there's a mic. There's a explicit microphone there and sometimes I'll even put it close to my mouth just to be extra explicit uh, that I'm talking to somebody else on the phone. No, I'm I'm totally I, I feel like this is as close as I've ever felt to being Jack Bauer because sometimes I'll put one ear pod in and I'll be talking uh like on the phone with one ear pod in and yeah. Yeah, and I get looks from people, especially especially at a union station or like getting off the go train. A lot of people look at me, thinking I'm talking to them. So, you're yeah. definitely not the only person, though. I've seen many people use the one earpod approach as well. Yeah, um, it makes it makes uh, it just kind of works, it brings man. It brings it back to when Bluetooth was first introduced. This is that was the picture of that douchey guy. I will send you a picture. That's true. That's true. Especially if he's wearing like a suit, like a pinstripe suit, and maybe like yes. a like a yes. like a like a tie clip or something like that. Sure. It's like a real like a like a real estate agent. Yeah. Um, I always yeah. picture like real estate agents and cab drivers are kind of the the people who. Oh my God! Who made who made Bluetooth headsets? Okay, here's my question. Here's my question. Okay, who are the cab drivers okay. talking to? Like, I guess who they're they... just on. 
So they're no. waiting for dispatch, no? No, 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 no. They're on the phone all the time. Same with Uber drivers. Same with people at convenience stores. You go to a convenience store, they're always on the phone. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to all day that you can sit on the phone all day? It's a lonely job, though. It's a lonely job, yeah, but, and they, but, they, they need to be connected, no? I guess so, but, like, okay, let's take the convenience store. They're actually, like, on a, like, a, a cord, like, they're on a cordless. Like, they they got the phone up to the ear. They're not even using the Bluetooth. Huh. Like, what's their, well, like, what kind of arm problems do they have in holding that phone up all day? Well, maybe they just, maybe they are actually not talking to anybody, but they're intentionally just making it look like they're talking to somebody so they don't have to interact with customers. I've thought about that. Okay, can I tell you a secret? Yeah. <laughs> As if you were going to say no. I I do that in Ubers all the time. I will... You, you do that? Okay. I, no, no, but okay. I do like a form of guerrilla marketing. So especially I would do this when I was working at Tilt because the cool thing with Tilt is that our mission was to kill e-transfers in Canada. So it was a very, anybody, anybody was a customer, any, anybody I see on the street, potential user for, for tilt. And I would get into an Uber and I would have a few uh, strategies I would play. One is that I would pretend that I was a venture capitalist visiting Toronto and I had invested in Lyft. And then I would talk about how good Lyft is doing and how Lyft is going to come to Toronto then I would stop the conversation and see if the Uber driver engaged, like if they knew about Lyft. So that was super interesting. Yeah. Sometimes but, I, so that, that was like one scenario. Then, uh, then a lot of times I would talk about, uh, I would pretend like I was on a partnership call with Tilt. So it would give me an excuse to pitch Tilt in its entirety and... And I'd make it seem like I was really important. So I would like pretend like I was talking numbers and I'd always be like using like big numbers, like 60K, 70K. Like I just throw numbers out there and you could totally see them. Like they would kind of like look back like, whoa, this guy's, this guy's wheeling and dealing back here. He's an important guy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it was all, all a ruse. And, but I, I got, I got a few Uber drivers to download Tilt. Because of that? Yeah, yeah, because I would end the call, and they'd say, "Oh man, like what? What were you talking about? That sounded exciting." Oh, I'm just you know just talking about this app that the company I work for called Till. It's basically like a free transfer. I mean, like why would you ever use why would you ever use e-transfers? You can transfer money for free. Oh yeah, yeah. Like what's it called? No, just, hey, give me your phone. I'll download it for you. Here, what's your password? <laughs> I just download it on their phone. <laughs> now, okay. Do you think you actually needed that setup though? Do you think that setup was really necessary? I feel like it was so much more fun. But okay, so you had imaginary conversations. Yes. To instigate a conversation. Yes. When you could have really just instigated the conversation in the first place. Yeah, but then you're like hard selling. This is like a this is an indirect sell because they would be piqued by the. Co- I wouldn't ever make eye contact after the conversation. So like if I if I hung up the call, I wouldn't try to have a conversation. I would just go to my phone and I'd wait for them to say something like, hey, like, where do you work? And then that now they've invited me to sell them. So it's like an invitation. Oh. It's, like an in, it's like an inbound lead. A lot of times I would just sit in silence at the back of the Uber, pretending like I was talking to somebody and then just walk out and that's it. So you're <laughs> treating this more like the pickup game, really. I As never played the, kinda... 
because it's kind of what you would probably do in the pickup game. Dude, because I got married. Would... I got married. I got married at twenty three. I met Christina when I was fifteen. I have no idea what the pickup game is. Well, okay, so you would maybe go to a any sort of establishment with a lot of potential females, and maybe you come in with a friend and you're hanging out and you're looking like you're an important person or wow, this is social proof. Like this, some girl thinks this guy is interesting, and maybe you are trying to make yourself. Uh, known and extravagant in some way to get her attention and you're trying to draw her into you that that sounds like something i would do yes okay so, so you pretty much try you you try to pick up a, a, an uber driver really i guess so. Try... i guess so. i'm just trying to sell i'm just trying to sell the app so uh <laughs> it's a little tougher it. with it's a little tougher with hubba because you have to pre-qualify them because it's a b2b app so it's uh, it's tougher. I have had one good hub of conversation though, uh, with an Uber, and I don't take Uber as much because I'm not in San Francisco nearly as much. So uh, I would I would not predominantly do this in San Francisco. I should say, mm. it doesn't work as well in Toronto because we just don't have the same app game. But it's coming. Hey, there's there's billboards in Toronto with code on it now. So that to me that was always like the telltale sign that you were in San Francisco when the advertisements were speaking to developers trying to recruit them like with javascript on a billboard so uh we're we're getting there feel like five more years and we're we're basically San Francisco in Toronto without the uh i remember without the do, without the douchiness and the homeless <laughs> i remember being in San Francisco when i saw a billboard sign that said finally an app to walk your dog <laughs> oh dude i know i know where that app was that on i, I know where that billboard was that was right by phil's office in townsend it was yeah or, or there's another one yeah it was for um oh what the hell is it called yeah it's the dog walking app um yeah wag, yeah, yeah wag or something or... i don't know I, I i don't even remember i just kind of at that yeah. point i threw my hands up and i was like this is out of control i, I i'll never forget so talk about peak startup moment here so we were going to visit Airbnb's growth team and we're walking in Soma, the big, big startup district, and we're all drinking coconut water, the same coconut water that they make fun of in the Silicon Valley episode because it's very expensive. And we're at the corner, me and my boss and uh, one other person, we're all chugging this coconut water. And this guy walks by and all I hear is, no, dude, I'm telling you, it's like Uber for financial services. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh my god! Like this is this is why I do and don't want to live in San Francisco. By the way, we need to we need to have an entire episode dedicated to how we used to love San Francisco and now we're not so much in love with it. Disgusting, it's a disgusting place. So we've been live for we've been live since we started talking about douchebags and uh, and uh, Bluetooth. So. Oh, I'm gonna. Wow. I'm, I'm gonna. I, I'll listen. I'll listen back to it before we before we post. But I think we're gonna keep it. I think we had some good. I think we had some golden there. All right. Um, All right. Hey, so uh, welcome everybody to Pencil Problems, a show about problems that you think are important but aren't. This is episode number three with Nick and Kent. Hey 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 hey. Um, um yeah go, go ahead yeah yeah i had a question for you man you um 
You sell any product? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. I, but hang on. But there's a few. Okay. No, I did not. So let's just be flat out. Okay. Did not sell new product. However, I had six abandoned carts. So oh, okay. Yeah, which is very interesting, and I, yeah, and, and like pretty substantial carts too. Like one person added five products, the other person uh, added three products, and my my hunch is that shipping might be an issue because I am charging for shipping. So mm. a little experiment that I'm running this week is I'm going to provide free shipping if your order is over a hundred dollars. So, which is pretty easy to rack up um, at ablecells.com. So that's that. And I have, uh, I am playing with, uh, AdWords, so I have AdWords traffic. Okay. Excuse me, driving to um, driving to Able Cells as well, just on a couple long tail keywords. And but the uh, man, if I could get even one conversion a day off of my my AdWords traffic, I would be pretty happy. the The cost per click is very very low, and we is could talk about even is it driving traffic to the site. Oh what's yeah, that, yeah. What's that kind 20, of funnel thing? Like? 20, 26 clicks a day around, okay. and which which isn't bad. The um, yeah. the yeah, I, I don't I don't know if you've noticed this, but I look at a ton of of buyer. Oh, sorry, I guess in this sorry in Hubba we have the concept of brands and buyers, and I guess I'm looking at a lot of brand websites that sell direct to consumers. So these are people who make their own product and then have like a Shopify on their own website. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed a huge trend. It's almost, it's almost nine out of 10, maybe even 10 out of 10 some days when I'm, I'm, when I'm looking at these sites where the first thing they do when you've been on the site for more than five seconds is one of these ghost pop-ups that says, um, you know, uh, put, you know, pop in your email and save 10% off your first order. Shopify, mm. and I know why now, because Shopify has this built in. So it's just a one button click now in all their stores. So, and by default, it's turned off, but it's literally one button to turn it on. Mm. I refuse to turn that on out of principle because I hate those ghost pop-ups and Google does penalize them um, or, and they're going to really start penalizing them on the SEO front. So I'm sure they work or else people wouldn't use them as much as they do, but I I've decided not to, to turn that on. Um, so I don't, it, but it, again, it feels kind of a waste cause I'm, I'm driving this traffic, but it's not converting and, and, and people aren't, I'm not even capturing emails. So I don't know yet, but I think my, the experiment that I'll run this week is I'm going to add free shipping for over a hundred. I'll add a banner that says that, and I will maybe even put that in the ad, in the Google ad, like free shipping over $100. And well, that's what's it. Your, so, uh, what, what, what's your click-through rate looking like? Oh, click-through rate is pretty good. It's a 3.7% 3, 3. for a couple keywords mm-hmm. and up to 7% on this one long-tail keyword, which is phenomenal mm-hmm. for, for AdWords. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, do you, Have you thought about using Facebook instead of uh, Google? No, yeah, yeah. Facebook's going to be just too expensive for me right now. So my, 
I haven't done the math yet, so I'm I'm paying for Able Cells with my uh, Ethereum winnings over the past year. And you sell? You actually sold? I, I sold a good little chunk of it to kind of pay okay. for uh, a few months of of Able of Able Cells just to see how it would go. And I think I'd rather be patient and invest in product because all the people I buy product from don't do consignment. So I, I really do have to buy inventory and it's expensive. So I would rather play the SEO game and um, rather than like just trying to do the Facebook stuff because it, it gets, it get, it'll get very expensive. So when you're, are, you, are you paying uh, per click, right? Are you paying per click for the Google AdWords? Yeah. Yeah. Just paying per mm. click. Just paying per click. I was thinking of, of doing some Twitter um, so my, my theory on all the, or my not theory, my hypothesis, my strategy on all e-commerce properties is to, as much as you can, you should be buying intentful traffic. So, uh, AdWords is intentful because people are typing something in, whereas Facebook is, is, um, persona or demographic, if you want to call it like psychographic targeting, where mm-hmm. you're just trying to carve, like you're trying to craft an audience based on a whole bunch of attributes or based on kind of lookalikes, which is super like at Hubba, that's what I do, you know, uh, three or four hours a day <laughs> is crafting the targeted Facebook audiences. But mm-hmm. on, on a site like a transactional, let's call it like a widget site where you're just selling a widget, you uh, like, Websites like Twitter and Google are actually better at the beginning because you can really capitalize on intentful traffic. So anytime somebody mentions a product that I sell on Twitter and they're in Canada, I can service an ad to them, which is going to be way more relevant than trying to kind of build a demographic on Facebook. So Facebook will probably be my last, uh, which is kind of counter, I mean, I know a ton of people are having success on Facebook, but I, I just don't, uh, I think it's going to be too expensive. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's it for, uh, that's it for me. So I will, I will let you know how, how it goes on the link front though. I'm, I'm definitely getting the links that I wanted. So I think last week I said, I wanted to get four links. I've got two of those links and I'm waiting to hear back on the other two. So, uh, nice. definitely nice. still 20, 20 mile marching on the SEO front and right. yeah, we'll see how the, see how it goes. It feels kind of bad though. Actually, let me just do a Hail Mary. Let me just check, see that I get an order while we were talking. Come on. Nothing. Nope. I, I was I wondering though, but like you guys, you make decent margin on these. So even if you like a Facebook ad would be more expensive, you still might even break even from that. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a good point. I, just for the data point really right yeah i know to be honest with you this is really bad i probably shouldn't admit this but i really haven't done any costing (laughs) i haven't done any math on any of that stuff yet because my my goal is to just get the product i know that if i sell it i mean okay you're right i could easily figure out what my cost per acquisition could be here but uh, all right nick you've you're right. I, I really should dip my toe even for a couple hundred bucks. Just see what see what's what. Well, okay. you're, you're kind of doing that when you're doing the AdWords stuff in a way. But I, I assume it's obviously very cheap. It's a lot cheaper. But I, I don't know. You, you're running a business. You 
to know how much your your product <laughs> like what your margins are, I guess. No, no, you're right. But, but I'm, the, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you have a sense of this, though. Yeah, I do. But the 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 traffic on Google is so cheap. I mean, we're talking. I'm spending you know six bucks, seven bucks a day to get thirty three clicks. So yeah, that's pretty good. If and the keywords are so targeted. So it's um. But you know you're right. I should I should give it a shot. So I am going to pull up my OmniFocus, which is an amazing app to all Mac users. You should go get OmniFocus. And what, what you, what's that? What are your thoughts on uh, dropshippers? I don't think it's going to be something. I'm not. I'm not. You mean in general or for able cells? Uh, just like this whole trend now of like, I'm going to serve up ads on Facebook, Instagram, and it's going to be some product and they just ship direct from AliExpress or something. Yeah. I'll t- yeah. Like got a lot of opinions on this. So I'll, um, I'll keep it condensed. I think that like anything it's, they, they all obey a power law. So out of a thousand that get started, a hundred of them, are profitable and most people think that it's really easy and then even for a drop shipping site it's not as easy as it looks or it's easy for a few months and then you you can't keep it up so i think that for those who that, that are serious um, a couple people i know are running multiple multiple stores trying different things uh, and are doing very well that's kind of a good strategy but i I'm I'm still skeptical that if you just create a store and use something like Oberlo, which is a, a Shopify plugin that connects directly to AliExpress. Let's say you want to sell sunglasses, you literally load Oberlo into Shopify, you type in sunglasses, you press a button, and you have 50 sunglasses in your store. Mm. I I don't think it takes, or I'd be very skeptical of anybody who, when you hear me pitch it like that, gets excited about that. I think the it's sort of like, I think of like smart money and dumb money. There's a ton of people who are going to still make money from that. But if you think about how much your time costs, why would you invest your time in something that anybody could just do in five clicks? Like, do you, do you really devalue your time so much that you're willing to do what somebody without any skills could do also? Like I always, I'm very skeptical of that kind of strategy. So I think that uh, just a shameless plug for, for Hubba, if you go on a trusted marketplace like Hubba and are able to sort by drop shippers and you can find a... No, I'm serious. I, you, you, te- you teed me up here. I think this was not a plan. But, like, but, but no, but I, I deal with this every day where why... So it doesn't take a lot more work than something like Oberlo, but you're at least talking to a real person who does who can who can drop ship also and you can actually form a relationship there versus like oh here's a pair of generic sunglasses and there are 50,000 variants of it out there in the world and now okay if you're doing it to learn how to be a Facebook marketer that's a great idea because you can almost pay for your own education if you could break even mm-hmm. um that that's a that's a great idea but if you're really trying to make money I would I would question whether it's the right way for you to spend your time. And okay, I, and you know, 
I know you're a little biased because you work at Hub and for sure. And I, I, I work at Sago, we sell real product and we make our stuff and, you know, we have retail presence. So not discrediting that, discrediting, discrediting that in any way. But if I was a dropshipper, it's pretty good in that I don't carry any inventory. It is, that's when you're running a retail business, that's your biggest probably challenge. It's, you know, the fulfillment and inventory management. You don't want to hold too much. You got to, you got to, you got to, the storage costs, all that. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is essentially figure out some trending products, make some really enticing ads and pick some good pricing that for your margins still make sense. Now the hard, the, the, the other, the flip side of this is that there's a lot of other people who are doing it. So the market's kind of saturated and maybe that's, you know, that's going to work against you. And you, now you're spending, your acquisition costs are very high. Um, but it, there's something really nice about that though at the same time. Um, you know? Okay. But, but, but wait, let's, let's take, um, let's take Sego as a, as a case study here. So, I am staring at right now. There we go. I'm looking at it in my basement here. Uh, Jinga's Jinga, no Jinja. Jinja, yeah. Jinja's playset. Okay. This is a foldable box-like thing that turns into a house, and there are different props that you can put in a house, and your kids will play with this. It's a it's a very it's a very quality toy. So, let's say that available at chapters. Let's say our indigo. Let's say that you <laughs> wanted to. Uh, okay, so let's say you guys were, were set up to drop ship this versus somebody buying inventory. Sure. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you rather put it on a on a marketplace like Hubba, where the so you could still say you drop ship. Like there are there are thousands of drop shippers on on Hubba, but the difference mm-hmm. is. When when people message you and say, "Hey, I want to carry your stuff," you're at least having some relationship with that person before, like you as the brand can decide whether or not you want your stuff drop shipped in this retailer, right? Yeah. Whereas on an Oberlow, you have no control. So you just submit your products to Oberlo and say, if anybody wants to drop ship this, I'm game, right? So mm-hmm. now, and that's why if you look at the products on there, and again, I, I'm speaking in, in generalities. There are a lot of great products and a lot of great businesses built on, on Shopify and Oberlo, but you're, you've lost all control. Like you, as a brand now, you don't know who's, you don't know where you're, where you're, toy is being sold next to is it being sold next to other age appropriate high quality uh, toys or is it being sold next to i don't know some discount something or other like you you just lose all that control when you kind of enter this pure drop shipping plug-in style game so I think that the future, yeah. the future is definitely drop shipping. I mean, there's you can already see that that trend happening, and it's so easy now to to do it. But okay, so you can't do five clicks and get uh, Sego's products into your store. But in maybe thirty minutes of exploring Hubba, 
finding the brand, just seeing if you meet the minimum requirements of the brand, sending a message to the brand owner, getting confirmed, adding the stuff to your site. Like that's not, that's not a lot of work. And I would argue that right now, while Hubba is still growing, it's actually a huge differentiator because a lot of people are just going to use Oberlow and they're going to be selling some, I don't know, knockoff Fisher Price toy or something. I don't know. That, that, that'd mm-hmm. be my, um, I, yeah, that's kind of my bias. <laughs> or Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, like, like, like you mentioned, like for Sego Mini, we want our brand to be associated with the right things at the same time, right? So like like you said, you you want to make sure it's beside age appropriate things or in a store that really um fits, I guess, and fit, fits with Sego's messaging and Sego's I guess purpose. Um right. and and yeah, yeah, you definitely lose a lot of that. And but it but it's just so easy. So I, I don't I don't yeah, I don't I don't know. There's you know, yeah. Okay, but I, I think I think what you what you're hitting at though is it's pointing towards a trend that I feel like I've kind of flipped a bit in my mind. Maybe it's because I'm just getting older or because I'm more like curmudgeonly and opinionated or something. But the world is full of crap. And on the marketing side there is there is for every one piece of gold, there's 10 pieces of crap. So this is, and we talked about this with your, your, uh, your blog posts. And by the way, we need to, we need to get to your, your stuff here too. But the idea of like, you know, are we just designing content for consumption and has that affected the way we create content? And again, I'm not, there's nothing new. We could go on for hours about this, but the, there's so much easy to produce shitty content and content in the most general form, in the form of products, mm-hmm. in the form of websites, in the form of blog posts, in the form of infographics, in the form of videos, where I think that the only way to future-proof yourself and the only way to future-proof your company is to decide that you have like an aversion to that and you will instead focus on creating original, valuable, noteworthy pieces of content. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, for sure. And um, I guess what you're saying is like dropshipping is shitty content, shitty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dropshipping yeah. is the listicle yeah. of, the, of the e-commerce world. <laughs> No, for hundred hundred percent. Um, but isn't but is, is the world just changing? You know, like is the world changing in that we just don't need all these retailers and people just want to go direct? Yes, uh, there's a and, lot of data, a lot of data showing, um, a lot of data showing that. But the interesting thing there too is that, and again. <laughs> Fuck, I feel like you're just you're just teeing up hubby here. So hang on. This is my last like, it's, it's very relevant though. So I feel like I do need to say it, and then I'm gonna shut up talking about hubba. But again, when we talk to brands, uh so perfect example is one of the brands that um that I found that I carry, uh, able uh, on able cells called Perfect Keto. So 
they are a uh, ketone company out of San Francisco. And when I talk to them, they, of course, are doing D2C. And if you go to their website, they have a whole D2C component. And they had never heard of Hubba when I reached out to them. And they were very skeptical because it's a very – Hubba's value prop is very – it's almost too good to be true. One of the biggest questions we get from people is like, wait, like what's the catch? So once we showed them, though, how easy it was to find buyers, they've actually pivoted their strategy to a lot more wholesale now. The reason why mm-hmm. they wanted to do D2C is because they just thought wholesale was really hard. And they thought mm-hmm. wholesale was really – just this whole other world that they just didn't have the money, time, or or resources to get into. So we mm-hmm. showed them, look, just you can do this. You can run your whole wholesale on Hubba. You can do it in, you know, we said about an hour a week. And what we're, I think what we're sort of finding is sort of what like HubSpot found back when they really invented the whole inbound marketing kind of idea and tool set where marketing used to be really hard. And there were very few companies that were doing it well online. But then as the tools got the tools got better, so let's take HubSpot as the best example, they they just created this entire market of consultants and um, experts and all that stuff because the tooling was was there. It was it was and it was easy to use. So mm-hmm. I don't know that's not really our strategy. Um, we're not trying to be the HubSpot of of wholesale, although that has a nice ring to it. But I do think that, um, so even going back to my my buddy uh, who sells this e-liquid stuff that I mentioned in the first episode. Now, again, e-liquid is a very kind of gray market. So the, the laws are still kind of sketchy in Canada on it. It's technically legal, but it's again, a gray zone. So very similar story where he had planned on going only D to C. That was his entire, his entire model. And then what he found was that the um, once he caught into a couple wholesale accounts, you, you become very addicted to wholesale because the orders are way bigger. They are mm-hmm. way more consistent. They tend to pay on time. And shipping becomes so much easier because you're shipping a thousand bottles instead of one bottle here, one bottle there. So you can negotiate mm-hmm. better rates. And he now is just not even really going to do retail because he's making so much money on, on wholesale. So I think that if you can crack wholesale with good buyers, you, every brand would do it. My, mm-hmm. my feeling is that the, the problem is most brands don't know how to find good buyers. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you, I, I don't know. I, I think the other part of this too, though, is like, and, the the argument I think the big argument to me against just giving your product away to dropshippers to move and going direct to consumers is just that you don't have like a consistent audience. Like if I'm gonna sell to a retail store, if we sell like Sega Mini sells to a retail store, that retail store has, you know, a big audience. Like say it's an indigo and they have like a huge audience and a huge following. And a lot of people buy a Sego Mini product there. They're like, oh, this is great. And they're going to come back for other Sego Mini products. Um, so that, so leveraging, essentially like partnering with other people's brands and leveraging other people's brands, right? And their audiences, which is 
to me really what the essence of like retail kind of is. Right. Um, right. Like Hubba is connecting, you know, brands with retailers. Um, and it, it's a partnership, right? Like the retailers need, need the brands, the brands need the retailers and they both leverage each other's audiences and their traffic. So I, I think that's, that's, that's a big case for not really doing the dropship approach, or at least the way I'm seeing the dropship approach. Right. And sorry, to be clear though, just correction, like when you say retailers, do you mean brick and mortar? It, it could be, well, not even necessarily brick and mortar. Oh, okay. It could be yeah, online yeah, yeah. store. It, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, okay. it could be either really, yeah. right? Um, yeah, no, no, hundred percent. Like we're seeing more online stores than, than, than brick and mortar, but um, like I, you, like Sago, you guys must favor brick and mortar though. We're in a lot of brick and mortar for sure, especially yeah. because we sell toys, physical toys. So, you know, you, you as a parent, uh, you know, you bring your kids into the toy store. It's almost like a, a night, a day out for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, for sure. We're, we're, but we were on online as well, but um, definitely the brick and mortar experience at least is still very powerful for kids. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not shitting on Hubba in any way. I'm just asking. Um, no, no. Because yeah, I, yeah. yeah, no, not, not at all. And it's a great idea. And I think that, uh, well, hey, I mean, you and I were going to get into the, the selfie stick game like six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> drop shipping just straight on Amazon. Remember? We weren't yeah, even going to create yeah. a, We weren't even going to create a store. We were just going to become Amazon, Amazon, uh, what, like an Amazon retailer, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. and oh, I think there's, there's potential there, but... And again, I blame Tim Ferriss for, for a lot of this because you you forget that the four-hour work week came out in like 2010, 2009 maybe. It's an old book, but it's still so popular and his podcast is still so popular. So people will go back and read that book and they'll forget to correct for time. And he's giving all this advice about creating a dropshipping website back when nobody knew what that was. I mean, Shopify had just started or was really just picking up steam. Um, mm. And the advantage, like if he were to write that book again now, like a revised updated edition, you, well, I mean, I, I feel like there'd have to be a section on Hubba um, because you, you, it's very hard for a normal person to jump into that game. It's a lot like domains. I used to, well, I, I probably own 350 domains and I definitely got into the uh, domain, like buying and selling game in university, trying to buy domains low and sell them high. And what I found out though, was I was a, a total idiot because I was kind of a noob to, um, to programming and just thinking of another fun topic, um, of, uh, I'm just talking about like how we first got into programming. I was so late. I was like, I didn't start programming until I was 17, which is very late mm -hmm. compared to my peers and uh, when I was in university. And I, I didn't really understand what a DNS was. I didn't understand what name servers were. I didn't understand any of that. All I knew is that I could buy domains on GoDaddy for $7 and try to sell them on auction for $37. But, and I read this book that talked about it. And what I realized is that book was written in like 1997. So all the principles 
were back when domains were this insanely rare, hard to find commodity that, you know, so I ended up buying this huge domain portfolio (laughs) only to basically realize like months later that that whole strategy was totally, it was such a waste because, you know, if if the .com was taken, people were just buying the .ca or they were buying the .io or the .net or the .org. And I, I feel like drop shipping still has a bit of that allure where it sounds so easy when you read the blog post, but when you when you think about how many people you're competing with and um you know you're you're there's just so many better ways you could be spending your time. Like take take that time that you're gonna try to set up your dropshipping site and like teach yourself how to code. Or, you know, get a book on you know advanced aerodynamics and go become you know, an aeronautics engineer and like go work for SpaceX or something like that. Like that's probably a better use of your time than, than like trying to, I don't know, make a shitty Shopify store, but that's just me. (laughs) Sorry. I'm like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw that, that, uh, did you see that that SpaceX talk this week that Musk gave? No, I didn't see it. Oh Jesus. Like, I don't know. It it just if he's even like ten percent right, if he's even ten percent on the mark, which some people are arguing he's not. He's just like total total BS that comes out of his mouth. But you just wonder like like what are we doing working like why aren't we all working for this man? Why don't we all just throw our hands up and say, Okay, you won, you're right. Let's all let's all try to make, you know, Mars Earth too, and I don't know. I I just get this feeling when I watch him. I, I realize that I have trouble afterwards getting motivated about anything I have to do on my to do list because it all feels so insignificant <laughs> compared to the mission that he has set forth at SpaceX. Um, yeah. No, it's true, man, but. I kind of think of it this way, like he might be on a bigger mission than everyone else. Um, but in order to kind of make his day work, he relies on the missions of all these other little pieces to work, like in his day-to-day life. Like he's able to put shoes on and, <laughs> I don't know, like climb up the stairs or, you know, these little things that we, a lot of other people put work into. Right. But I guess in order in order for him to do great things, he needs he needs a lot of simple little things to happen. And I just you know, I, I I've accepted I'm just gonna do simple little things and uh that that's that that's gonna be it, man. That's it. I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go to Mars. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a, a spaceship to go to Mars. It's too late for me, man. I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> like realistically, man, like I'm you're not gonna learn to be a aeronautics engineer. At, at this age now and be like the best at it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we're not the best at it, but like, don't you think that, I don't know, it kind of goes to, I've, I've had this idea for a while around this idea of like scientific conscription. Have I ever told you about my idea for scientific conscription? No. So instead of having people 
you know, like Israel still has military conscription even now. So, you know, you finish high school, you have to go to the military for a couple of years and just serve in whichever way you can. Some people go and become soldiers. Some people do engineering. Some people just like build shit or like move stuff from point A. Like whatever you can do to help the, the Israeli war machine, you must do as an Israeli citizen. And, you know, just straight up old school conscription. So it's like, okay, let's do scientific conscription. So let's pick problems that are really hard, like going to Mars or <laughs> yeah. fixing climate change and saying that instead of, you know, being a, a privileged uh, D-bag and taking some gap year where you just go get high all over Europe, why don't you, why don't we force people, like force you legally to go work on a hard problem for a year and we'll pay hmm. you to do it. You'll get some stipend where you can, you know, just live off of this this salary but the goal is that like every single person contributes in some way to a scientific endeavor that we as human beings believe to be very important and i feel like that's a lot better than military conscription and um i, I don't know like maybe maybe you you know i mean it's it kind of goes to our our topic for for today um but first, hang on. You gotta you gotta check in on your on your book first. So let's let's do that. No, let's let's let, 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 let's come back to the book. I, I I think I think this ties in really well because like you know we were talking to we we're the plan for today was to really talk about like breadth versus depth and talk about experts and you know okay so let's just say there was scientific conscription right and everyone was forced to work on a hard problem now. If you get somebody who's a very, I don't know, he's not an expert and knows nothing about this problem space, and you ask him or her to advance his field in, in some way, would they just get in the way? <laughs> you know, would, would, would they get in the way like of, of, of like the true experts and the true geniuses? Like if you gave Elon Musk a team of shitty 18-year-old high schoolers or university <laughs> freshmen and said, like, okay, we're here for our conscription. Like, okay, let's let's build a rocket. <laughs> they would just, the experts on the team would just be like, what the fuck? You guys are just bringing us down. Hmm. Okay. Two, two thoughts on that. The first one is, what if the task for one of these 18-year-old whatever was to just provide daycare services for the astrophysicist so that he could work an extra 30 minutes a day or cook his family dinner so that he would have one less thing to worry about. I'm serious. I mean, very similar to like okay. the way the, the army works. If you cannot, if you can't contribute in a, in a physical way, a lot of times the jobs that you're going to do are there to just make the people who can serve in a physical way easier. So, you know, you might okay. be yeah. like, like lugging gear versus shooting people or, um, you know, sharpening pencils versus drawing plans. And so uh, you're right though. I, I do now, but that kind of brings up the, the fun topic of, so I'm going through this process right now because I'm I'm hiring. I just hired someone on our on our team, and 
I'm doing their like 30, 60, 90 plan for, for when they start. And what's amazing is that it forces you to really compartmentalize your problems. So I think that you're right. Like if, if Elon Musk got 50, 18 year olds and he tried to delegate to them the way he might delegate to one of his senior astrophysicist people, that's obviously going to create chaos. But what if he could, or what if a team could spend their time designing, like breaking down big amorphous problems into discrete problems that have inputs and outputs? So I always go to that, like, you ever, you ever seen Apollo 13? Mm-hmm. Remember that scene? Mm-hmm. It's like the classic scene where they dump all the parts onto the table and they say, like, we need to get this to fit into this. And it's like a square into a circle. Yeah. And all they have are those, like, I, I'll bet you, you could take 18-year-olds off the street and they will solve that problem because you have a very clear set of inputs, everything on this table, and you have a very clear output this thing must fit into this thing. So, and it ended up saving, you know, so like, I think that if you could, if you could break down the problems of SpaceX into these Apollo 13 problems, yeah, I think you could, I think he could make use of a thousand 18 year olds. Okay, so, okay. No, no, okay. So if, if, if one were to break the problem down into a whole, into 1000 small little problems that are easily digestible, wouldn't you still think that a astrophysicist or whoever the expert is in that field would solve that maybe faster? Maybe, but how many problems can this person solve in a day or in, in, a, in a week? Or even the effort involved in breaking a problem down, in breaking a big problem down into a thousand small ones for like tasking work out to people versus just doing it yourself like you you have this intern on your team and you wanted to get him or her to make a whole bunch of facebook ads or something for you i, I don't know right yeah. now he's gonna he's gonna ask you a million questions and he's like oh how do i do this how do I do targeting what's look like again <laughs> yeah and i'm sure that happens and you're going to be talking to him and spending a few days with him and maybe he'll get better over time right but that time that you spend to do that, you could have probably just done it yourself in five minutes, right? Ah, but instead, okay. you, spent, you spent like half a day teaching them, right? Okay, but, and but I, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go, no, no, no. Go on. Sorry. Go on. Okay, so, so in, a, in a problem space like Hubba, where it's, it, things are important, but it's not like the time sensitivity is not like I need to get to Mars by this date. I need to... <laughs> You know, they're, 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 it's a little different. Like the time scales are a little different in that in that sense. That you could afford to spend the four hours, but I don't know if someone on a mission to go to Mars can waste that four hours. Hmm. And uh, that, that's interesting. I mean, you're right. Like maybe the class of problems that we would want to solve are such that you're better off. Like you're right non-experts would get in the way or the or I, th- I think what you said before is the most likely where the amount of energy if you just think about it like energy the amount of energy it would take to break the problems down wouldn't give you a return on them being solved 
Yes, I, I could totally see that happening. But hang on, but haven't you? So I had a literally like it's like you're, you're reading my mind here. I won't I won't bore you with the details, but we we're, we're trying this experiment at Hubba, and we have a very manual task that it's created. So I've dug myself this hole where I'm running a very rogue-like experiment using Facebook ads of all things, and it's created a huge amount of manual work for somebody to do. Mm-hmm. I have been doing this because it's very like finicky manual work, and it needs to be done with near 100% accuracy for, for me to be able to call this experiment success or failure. And we're spending mm-hmm. a significant amount of money. So it's I, I feel very responsible for this. So I'm now it got to a point today, though, where I realized that there there is no way that I can just I cannot do it. I don't have the time. And Tuesdays are especially tight for me because I take my son to hockey now. So I, I get in early and I leave early. And then we do this podcast at night. So like I Tuesdays are just this great forcing function of like, I have way too much stuff to do. How am I going to get all this done? And I, I just said, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the time. So I took my, almost my whole morning breaking this task out into a Google Doc with, you know, I don't know, eight or nine steps. And then I sat with my, uh, my co-op while he did the first two. And it turned out that I missed like seven steps <laughs> as well. So at the end of this, though, he had, you know, this this very discrete set of, of instructions for how to process this these these leads that are coming in, and mm-hmm. he made two mistakes that were pretty big, to be honest with you today. But out of you know twenty four, he got twenty two right, and I just checked in before now, and he did a few more even tonight. And I'm telling you, the the feeling that I have right now, where when I see one of these things pop into my inbox, and I can just forward this off to him. It's ins- it reminds me mm-hmm. of how bad of a manager I actually am because my instinct, and this ties right back into breath versus depth, my instinct is always to do it myself, always. And I have to fight the, I have to fight that urge so strongly that I know that it's almost like a, it's a, it's a bug, not a feature where I used to think it was a feature and I used to think it was because I was an expert in a lot of things. And I had been, you know, thinking of breadth versus depth. I'd gone very deep in a few things and only I was capable to fix them or to, to do them. But mm-hmm. now when I really push myself and I mean, I've got an amazing boss who's my, like our CMO, who is almost building our team in such a way that if I don't level up in this way, I'm just not going to thrive because we're we're building a, a team. We're building like a real big, efficient team versus a lot of the companies I've been at in the past have been like a group of very talented experts all kind of doing their own little thing. Um, whereas now mm-hmm. it's like we're part of this like bigger mesh and none mm-hmm. of us are all that important in a way. We all have to work together and that's how the system kind of works. And it's it's very uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me, <laughs> but it's like, and yeah. And, and this is kind of what we were going to talk about last week, which was like, learning let go. Um, because I'm in the same boat, like I instantly, like I've seen a time and since the beginning, and I know how a lot of these systems work and I helped build a lot of these things. 
and I know a lot of these the ins and outs of um, a lot of the subsystems and the apps and all that. So when we're trying to say fix a problem or debug a problem or QA something, I kind of just know which are the edge cases, where things might fall, where things might fail. And I feel like, okay, I'll just do it myself. Or you can spend a whole day trying to figure this out, find out what's wrong, and have to come in and maybe still clean up after this. And maybe that's a bad mental approach, knowing, okay, I don't, maybe I don't fully trust some trust people sometimes. And it can also be just me being very anal. I think it's more the latter, really. Hmm. Um, but I really, I, sometimes I'm just like, I just want to know exactly what the problem is. I'm just going to go and do it because it's going to take me way quicker to just do it myself than to sit down and explain what is going on in this problem, in, 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 uh, in this situation. But like you said, like you, you spent the whole day running the school doc and now you're building, you're teaching this kind of thing and he can do it himself. Um, and I think that's really ultimately what you kind of want. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I just talked myself into this. Like I, I just need to check myself and really eat the short-term loss and take the long-term gain. I think so. Um, and, and, and I think it's because though, like, I think it's because we are, um, you and I are more on the, so actually, I don't know. This is a good question. So where do I'll tell you where I see you, but where do you point yourself on the breadth versus depth spectrum? And hey, just quick, quick, quick note there. You were, I, you were cutting out a little bit. So I don't know if you like moved away from your computer or anything there, but um, just uh, you, you sort of cut in and out there for, for a second in that last, uh, that last rant you had there. So if you, if you were moving, mm-hmm. um, yeah, maybe don't. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I kind of think I'm more, I'm definitely more of a breath person. Um, but I do think, and I wondered, I don't know, is there really thing of depth in breath? Oh, dude, I, I hate to do this too, man. You're, you're cutting out, uh, you're cutting out a lot for me here. Do you have... Um... Okay, hold on, hold on. Yeah, give me a second. These damn headphones. You got ripped off. God. This is why you buy the... This is why you overpay for Apple products. I guess, well, technically, Beats is now Apple, but... How, how's this? Better? Oh, oh, much better. Yeah, much better. You know what's the funny part? These are I'm using AliExpress two dollar <laughs> headphones now. And, oh man, uh, it sounds so much better. Oh my god, old reliable right here. Um, sorry. So I'm you were, yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely more of a breath person than a person I think. Um, and yeah. I, uh, me, me and a colleague of mine, his name's Colin. He's the director of engineering at Sego Mini. Um, we pair very well together because I tend to kind of kick doors down and get a lot of things running and moving. And um, he almost like cleans up 
not after me, but he's a very detailed person. I'm a very broad strokes person. Yeah. And we kind of work well together because like, inst- like if he left his own devices, he might spend too much time on Yusha. And if I was not my own devices, it would just be a slow mess. And we tend to work very well to cut. So we, we kind of complement each other. Um, so he is a little bit more of a depth person. I'm a more of a breadth person. Um, but I think over the years, because I have worked built a lot of these systems, I just know a lot of the ins and outs um, from that experience. Um, but in, in a general scale, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more of a breadth person. I, how about you? Yeah, I definitely would have pegged you as a breadth person, and I'm I am 100%. So it's funny, like in, when you when you when you suggested this as a topic, I realized that I'm a breadth person in some respects, and then I'm a, I'm a depth person in other respects. So I'm, and this is why I feel like you and I shouldn't ever start a company together unless we have someone more organized along with us. Because so like even at Hubba, uh, one of the one of my um, one of my favorite people, his name is Justin. He is so organized that he and I will have a meeting together, and I'll and he's so very creative too. So like we'll be riffing on things, but I could probably go from meeting to meeting to meeting like that all day and kick off twelve different initiatives. And I'm 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 organized. I mean, I wouldn't have a team if I wasn't organized. So I can you know, add stuff to OmniFocus and, you know, I use getting things done as like my, my, my task framework and I can do that sort of thing. But when it comes to really catching details, I've never been good at that. And someone like Justin, who he's just incredible, like he'll remind me about stuff or he'll, he'll follow up with things that I just didn't think of or, and they end up being very important stuff. So that's even where like, it's been a kind of stark realization for me. I always sort of thought I was a product person or that I'd make a good PM. And I don't think I'd make a good PM. I, I don't think I have the detail oriented. I mean, maybe I could work at being detail oriented and then could graduate to a PM role if I, if I wanted to, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't right now. And I wouldn't right now because I don't think I am detailed enough. I, I could kick things off, but I, and I, I get so frustrated by the minutia of Jira and bullshit like that, that I just, I know that that's not my, my kind of world. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But then, and just, I mean, I'm a, I, I read a lot of weird shit and I'm into a lot of different things and I, I I'm just a curious person. So I, I have a lot of breath, but then yeah. where I, where I've done depth though, is something like, like in programming. So I kind of, and I'm curious where you stand on this because I know you're you're still kind of a PHP guy, and I consciously made a decision. In I I remember <laughs> exactly when it was. I was in the year 2010, and I was at a Rails conference, and I saw Dave Thomas, who is a kind of a godfather in the Rails Ruby world, speak, and they were putting on this like advanced Ruby and Rails seminar in Denver. And I convinced Ron Becker, God bless you, Mr. Becker, to 
pay for me <laughs> to go to this advanced Rails conference. He did not know that I was moonlighting as a Rails developer at the time. He, but my my thesis project, which then turned into um, Nick and uh, Alex's company, <laughs> um, was all written in, in Rails. And anyway, that's how I justified it. Long story short, I went to this like intensive four day, uh, you know, advanced kind of Ruby Rails bootcamp, whatever you want to call it. And I came out of there legitimately feeling like a, I could, I could hold, I could hold my weight against any Ruby programmer, maybe not in the world, but at least in my circles. Like I was, there's not a problem that I couldn't solve. I could build gems. I could do meta programming. I could do crazy testing. I could do concurrency. I could talk to Erlang and Ruby. Like I could do all this cool shit. And, mm-hmm. and then I just never looked back. I saw node when node became really popular and three quarters of the Ruby community jumped to node. I didn't, I didn't jump. I doubled down even more on, on rails. And that led me to, I, I think I have a degree of mastery in Ruby and, and rails. So I am very productive and comfortable there. But then I think my question mm-hmm. is, now I'm worried I'm too comfortable. So I'm by far now that like old guy who's still hanging on to rails. And we used to make fun of all the Java people who were hanging on to Java when Ruby became a thing. And now things in, in our community like Elixir are, are really sexy. And a lot of the remaining kind of Ruby people are jumping to that. And I have this, this voice in my head that's like, hey, it's time. Like Node was too soon, but now, you know, this thing's been around for 12 years. It's time. You should probably hedge your bets against this technology. But then this other voice is just like, nah, man, just keep going. Just keep being that guy. There's always going to be Ruby jobs. So um, I, I, did you do the same thing with PHP or how did you kind of navigate that water? So I don't, I don't think I've ever... I like I would consider myself a PHP guy at all, um, but uh, like my programming background, like I started at EA, you know, C++. Uh, I would do my side projects do some kind of web editing, a bit of PHP, JavaScript. Um, I even really use frameworks, man. I like the idea of programming and the logic, but by get serious enough to start using like you know I use PHP but I didn't really get into it. I touched other rails. Um but to me it was always about just a tool to problem or just learning a tool just for the fun of learning a tool. You know, I'd say go out of a lot of more um objective stuff um and then move to a lot more P sharp. But Tornado is more of a, it, it's like a vehicle to get to what you want to do. So then falling in love with that language for me, and maybe it speaks to me being a depth person. I'm sorry, a breadth person. Um, but I remember after making one of uh, Sago's apps, um, I just remember looking around and I was like, you know, some guys here at Sago, really talented developers. And I was like, wow, you guys, have made this your kind of calling in yeah. a way like you, you you just you've gone really deep 
And I could see that and I can see myself not being into that hmm. because I've, I've never been really into just learning the ins and outs of a language. I just been more into like, I just want to see the result and I don't really care about the pieces of flair that are going to get me there. I just, I'll, I'll write something and I'll write something decent to get myself there. But I was never that guy who was just really, really into pro the programming itself, like the, the ins and outs of a language. Um, but then at that point, that's where I kind of mentally made that pivot to wanting to be more of a product manager. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's no, that's so interesting because it, it resonates with because um, believe me, I feel like that too. I'm not I'm not a um, and and I'm also not a. I used to be a professional developer. Now I'm not. I've been a marketer for for seven years. So when I look at, I have a lot of imposter syndrome when I'm sitting in a room of developers and they're like, oh yeah, you're a developer. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a developer. And it's like, oh, no, not really, <laughs> not, not anymore. Not like you guys. Um, but I think that what's funny is that I do have a bit of that itch. So I, I think that I could be very happy as a developer and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very interested in low level, like, I, I'm interested in how the language is implemented. I'm interested in, um, you know, like I, like one of the books I just finished reading was like how like hardware works. Cause I'm kind of interested in, so I, I find myself just being interested in that stuff. And I don't know, somewhere along the lines, I fell into marketing and, and I kind of know why it's sort of a funny story. It's, I don't think we should, it's kind of too long for, for, for tonight, but I, I wonder if some of it for me stems from being, having a lot of imposter syndrome when I first started programming though, where I looked around at when I was again, like I was 17, like I said, first year university, learning how to program Java and C plus plus and my colleague, my, my, my friends, my, my classmates, they'd been building games since they were like seven years old. They were, they were those kids who programmed computers all through high school. And I had to work so hard to just keep up with them that mm-hmm. I think in my head, I'm still that guy where I probably know more than I think I do, but I would never claim to be one of them. If that makes sense. Like, I like, let's put it this way. I never applied to Google to be a developer where 90% of my friends either have worked at Google at some point as a developer or at least applied to be a developer there. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's funny. So we actually, so one of our friends from, from DGP, uh, at UFT are where we did our masters, um, is now the head of AI at Tesla. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he was a co-op. He was like an intern, doing some mindless work for Masashi on SenseCam, I think, wasn't he? Or no? Or was he working with Kevin on the game thing? Oh, I think he was working with Masashi, but maybe yeah, I'm, I think he was yeah. doing like. And and I remember so he, he so that that was a moment where I realized like okay, I'm not like like 
I feel like there's almost three kinds of programmers. So I feel like you almost described maybe like level, okay, maybe, well, there's different levels, but there, there's clearly one level of programmer, which is, let's call it like wizard level. And these are people where in their spare time, they can do things that most people get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, and they can do it in their spare time. And I remember very specifically, he was building this like evolutionary algorithm um, that was like programming almost these like artificial life things. I, I don't even understand what he was doing. And he was in second year university doing this on the side. Mm. And that it's like, okay, you're going to do big things. You're going to be a very smart, like uh, that's not, that was never me. I was always more on the business side. Like, let me learn how to build an app as best as I can so that I can sell it for a lot of money. <laughs> like that was kind of more, so I feel like maybe I went one level deeper than you, but not much. And I think maybe that's the difference. Like I, you're right. Programming was still always a means to an end versus mm -hmm. the end itself. And I think that for some of these people, even now that I work with, like programming is just that, like that's the end. Like that's what they want to do. It's not to see the screen. It's not to sell the business. It's, they just have to program. And, and there's nothing wrong with that there's absolutely it's it's no amazing no, it's kind I of love, kind of kind of beautiful seeing. yeah i yeah, wish i could just do that <laughs> um but it was actually i think in grad school man like i remember just seeing a lot of people who were they they, they were really into programming a lot of people were really into programming and they would program 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 but they would never produce anything right or and, and they were kind of, I guess, hobby, hobbyists working on their own little projects, but they would never ship anything. And that never sat well with me Yeah, because I'm like, what's the point? It, it's like you playing basketball and some guys crossing, crossing a guy over, doing all these dribble moves, but just never scores the bucket, never drives to the hoop, just standing there dribbling. Like, what's, what's the point? Um, well, well, or I think it's like to, like to use your basketball analogy, because I think this is actually really – isn't it more like the guy who plays like he, he plays by himself a lot or he'll take yeah. shots. Like he's really good at just like, if you put him in an empty court, he can take shots from anywhere. He can, he can kind of do some kind of cool layups, but then you play a game of pickup and he sucks. And it's like, you've mastered the like technical skills of this game. But when you get thrown into a real life situation where you have to, problem solve and make decisions and like that's kind of where it falls apart and I think we went to school with a lot of people like that who were on paper probably way smarter than us just from a general IQ perspective mm -hmm. um, could do things on a computer that I was in awe of but most of them yeah they couldn't translate it to any kind of a and it's so funny I mean we were there to do our master's in research and I don't know about you, but I realized about six months in that I was not, research was not for me. I was a entrepreneur, product yeah, person. Man. Like, <laughs> I, and, I left grad school, man, for because I realized that I was more in love with money than I was with writing papers. But is it money? Okay, but but I don't I don't think it was. Okay, I mean maybe you're just more honest than me. I don't, I don't think it's money though. For, okay, 
okay, let me ask you, was it money or was it what you just said? Was it the, like, are you just a, a creative person where your outlet is products, the way that Picasso's outlet was painting? Like, you you need to ship things in order to live <laughs> or in order to feel fulfilled. And frankly, you just don't do that in grad school. I mean, well, maybe... You, you, you kind of do in a way, but like I, I you know, so I, I built like a online poker system for um, seniors to kind of connect and play remotely and um, to build social interactions and measuring like the effects of social interactions in games. And when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I built a poker site. Like, that's that's awesome. I lost all the code because my hard drive that it was on died, and I was, I'm kind of pissed about that. Um, but I kind of wrote all that, and I was like, oh, that that's cool. And I had a I had, I had a product, and it worked, and I tested it, and we ran studies on it. But then in grad school, it's all about research papers. It's all about just writing papers, and you're on this project for just a long time, and you're trying to just churn out as many papers as you can from this one thing, and you have a whole bunch of leachy people who want to i don't know maybe leachy is a bad word but kind of leachy like people who want to leverage your work to write more papers yeah because it's all about publications in grad school and the more publications you have the kind of more academic currency you have the better chance you have at getting a uh, like a teaching position or something else right tenure or whatever it is yeah yeah and To me, it was like, oh, that, like, I, I, I just left EA and I came to grad school. So I was making like decent money and suddenly I wasn't making money or I was getting like funding and it wasn't even mm. like a ton, but like I was on a scholarship and I, I was just doing side work, but I'm like, I'm used to a certain kind of lifestyle that I wasn't getting anymore. Yeah, and instead right. my currency is writing papers and I, I don't know. I just wasn't really into it uh, that much anymore um but there is times where i still think about going back to grad school and doing doing a phd so it's really it's really kind of weird um maybe okay, I'll but, but don't don't those fantasies come after you've made some windfall amount of cash yeah i i, I guess well it's, it's also when i when i kind of get get bored um so you know even when i so when we first started uh sago i was kind of uh building a lot of stuff no sorry i was pre 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 sago so we were a company called zinc row and we were basically a little design shop and we were doing a lot of client work for um kids interactive content really cool stuff um and initially i was doing research for them then i was running projects for them um but then i kind of got bored and i wanted to program some stuff so I started programming and then I got to a point where I'm like, okay, I feel good about the programming and I just want to do something else. And I moved off and I started doing more like product management stuff. Um, but there's moments where I just feel like there, there's complacency in my life and I want to do grad school again. Hmm. Uh, but, but I don't know if I feel that it? way right now. But- but what is it about, like, what's the feeling you're chasing at grad school? Like, what was it? Was it the the freedom to really? Yeah. 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 There, there's a thing about grad school is like the freeness. 
to you're hearing about all these other problems outside of the space that you normally work in. And I was coming into grad school at the time from the games industry. And then I was hearing stuff about using, um, I don't know, all this tech to help developing countries, using webcams to solve blindness, uh, connecting, you know, villages with doctors and stuff. Yeah, and and, chip, yeah, and chip chase, boy. And chip chase, man. And then, <laughs> um, I don't know, even the stuff that we're doing in, in, our, in our lab and in like DGP. And I was like, this is cool. Like, it's totally different space and you're impacting people. Um, and that, that, was, that was really fun and liber very liberating. Um, and also the freedom in your schedule to just try new shit out and explore and read papers. And um, you don't really get that in working a job. You know, like you're all about now at Hubba, you're all about retail and um, the e-commerce space. And, you know, if you were to he listen to a talk about, you know, villagers and um, using tech to improve their lifestyle in any way it's like a complete departure from what you're doing and it's also it's probably very refreshing it, and it's super and i think maybe why the two of us are breadth people is you kind of need to be so a, a master's program is like breadth and it's funny how both of us didn't do a phd even though we both had the opportunity to and that is really depth right like that's like yeah. the definition of depth yeah. and and I don't know about you, but Ron, our, our thesis supervisor, basically told me, like, I think you could do a PhD, but he's like, you're one of those guys that's going to take seven years. Like, you're, you're not going to get this thing done in four years because in your third year, you're going to change your, your mind about something and you're going to, like, basically, like, scope creep. Like, you're going to scope creep your thesis and you – so, like – I, I will support you, like, because, you know, the, the, your, your supervisor has to sign a piece of paper where, like, Nick and I could have, like, foregone, like, we could have foregone our master's and jumped right into a PhD um, if we got this piece of paper signed from, from our, 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 our supervisor. But he basically said, like, you're, you're in for, like, at least seven years here, just based on your personality. And I said, Ron, don't worry. I want to get out of here as fast as I can. <laughs> Because, like, I I loved the atmosphere of um, of the of the lab and like even just like you know Kevin Miller Masashi me you just coming in every day or once every couple days and the ideas and the conversations and like even just going to the coffee room and like seeing like uh what's that guy i think he's at google now hinton i remember I had a conversation with this like crazy ai pioneering professor and like just him sitting drinking a coffee and like having this chat with him like that kind of stuff isn't it's it's an it's an you can't put a price on that like that's amazing mm -hmm. stuff and mm -hmm. i miss that but but then part of me just thinks like well of course you miss that that's like and hey we were like do you know how many people are are angry when they find out that we basically got paid to do our masters like, oh. like most people are, are going in like crazy debt. We got paid to do it because in the sciences, you actually get a decent salary in a way. Um, and like, it, but it was kind of just like camp. Like when I look back on it, it was more like summer camp than it was. <laughs> um, I, I mean, very, very productive. And I mean, we worked like I, I worked my ass off, but it was very, it was very like, 
I, I, okay, I could have stayed there for four years. Ron would not have kicked me out. Like, yeah, dude. It, it was fun, man. It was it was like summer camp. Yeah. I remember, like, uh, Tariq came on, and yeah. he was my research assistant. I remember. You guys uh, just played NBA Live. No, we were playing. We talked a lot of shit. We played a lot of video games, and we had video game, like, competitions, and we just battled each other. It was great, man. Um, and we got our stuff done. You know, yeah, and you guys killed it, and I feel bad because that was the summer I was getting married, so I was like, I was hardly there that summer. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that if I'm honest with myself, it's it was just it was almost like too it was too good to be true, and that's like why I think I loved it so much. Where I know that it, I would just. It's it's almost too easy in a way from from my personality where at at a place like Hava or at Tilt or at Sego you're like you're you're it's a fucking grind man like it's it's a it's and it's funny we were talking about software development and I, I get a lot of shit from developers who knew me back when I was a, like a full time developer or like when I kind of turned coat and went onto the growth or marketing side and what I'm about to say is kind of pretentious, but I, I mean every word of it. The problems on the marketing side are much harder than the problems on the development side. It's, they're different. So I'm not saying it's not harder for some people, but the like programming is like just science. A lot of it, there's a lot of creativity in, in designing solutions, but at the end of the day, you know, you can just keep at it until you find a solution and you hope it's elegant, and if not, you'll just refactor it or redesign it in a couple of years. Whereas, like on the marketing side, because humans are are fundamentally involved, and you're trying to convince them to do something that's not really, it goes against their like fundamental agency in some parts because like they don't want to trust you, they don't have a reason to trust you. It's a it's a much more complicated, messy problem, which I find way more interesting to solve than. Like I get so much more satisfaction when I put an audacious goal from a growth perspective on a spreadsheet and I hit it versus, oh, I'm going to build this, you know, um, map reduce function using a, you know, red black tree and it's going to be n log n time instead of log n time or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, and, and I'm obviously that's just a personal preference. Like I, Maybe it's they're only harder for for me, but when I would sort of talk to colleagues about why I jumped over to that side of the fence, I think it's just because of the variety and the and the challenge of those kind of problems, which is kind of like grad school, like more kind of grad school problems. Like I don't know about you, but I found the hardest part of grad school just writing my thesis in a way in which it was approved. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like when Ron read my first draft. I wish I had have had him on recording. He said, I stopped after three quarters of a page. This might be the worst piece of writing I've ever seen in my career as a professor. <laughs> and I had, this was in, in May and I was getting married in September and I wanted to graduate before I got married or else I would have to pay another, like I'd have to start paying <laughs> for grad school. And he said like, there's no way you're going to make September 10th deadline like this is the worst writing I've ever seen <laughs> and I was like I gotta do it Ron and he's like I'm gonna hire you a writing coach 
So I got like a private writing, like a I got a like a, a tutor for for technical writing. I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I don't know if we had this exact same conversation, but he also gave me a writing coach. <laughs> It was, was it, it was his wife? Was it his yeah, wife? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was his wife at the time. But honestly, I think she made my writing way better. Oh, me too. Like she was just, she would read my stuff and she just cut like a whole page. She's like, you don't need that. Or you don't need that whole paragraph. You just said it in that one sentence. I'm like, oh, okay. And she's taught me a whole bunch. It was, it was great, man. I, I, I was, that's probably one of the things I'm actually really grateful for, um, from from Ron is oh, actually introducing yeah. his, his ex-wife to, <laughs> to to correct my writing. Oh, me too. Like the um, and even Ron himself was an amazing editor. Like the way he, like I remember a few of our pages, he would literally, like you say, he would cut almost an entire page, and he's like, you can sum this up in like one sentence, and he would just like ninja this sentence, and um, he. I remember I had like jokes in my thesis. Like I had like, I had like, I had like metaphors and like story. Like basically I was writing it like, like in prose. Like I had like, it, it was like a story arc. And the, like, that's where he basically just said like, I, he thought it was a joke. Um, and I had never seen a thesis before. Like I, I didn't really know how to write, um, I didn't know how to write a thesis. So yeah, I, I mean, technical writing, even just for that, going to grad school was worth it. I feel like we should do a whole show on, because I get asked this a lot when people see that I went to grad school. They ask me like if it was worth going to grad school. Um, I, I, feel like that, I feel like that'd my, be an interesting show. Yeah, I have one piece of advice for that, but maybe I'll save it for the show, uh, for the, for the follow-up. Um, but the to, to your point though, Okay, actually, I'll just say it. Like, I think if you go to grad school, you have to know a topic going in. Yes, you have to know yes. what you want going in. Um, you can't just go in open slate like, oh, I don't know. Wait, what do you what, what do you want to solve? Or what do you think is interesting? Like, I think you got to go in with purpose and you'll have a way more fulfilling grad school experience. Not that I didn't, but it would have been a lot easier. Um, it would have been a lot easier for sure. Oh, um, yeah. especially, especially if you're going to be doing like a PhD or something and you're going to devote like six years of your life, like you have to really be passionate about a topic. That's great advice. Um, but okay. To my, to your other point about, um, jumping ship and going on the marketing side and why that the problem space is more interesting there. It's a little bit different at Sago mini or just in the game space period, because I think when you're making a game, there's a high degree of craftsmanship in that. Like it's not just writing, like if you wrote an algorithm that was, um, uh, I don't know, like, like, like you said, like, and like a log n algorithm versus an n log n algorithm, like for the stuff, if it's like a web page or something, you're not gonna really yeah. notice that yeah. much. For like a game, there's a lot of that feel stuff, like that touch and mm. how things move and bounce and squash and shrink and um, things transition from thing to thing. Like it, it's an art and it's part programming, part almost like programmatic animation in a way. 
um, at least for the stuff that we do at Sego. Like EA, a lot of that stuff was abstracted out. Um, But we would still, like, you know, you want the ball to, the animations to ease into another, like, um, pose or, you know, you want to make things still feel very nice, the transitions and stuff. And it's a lot more than just um, the algorithms underneath. You still obviously want to have elegant algorithms. You want performance to be great. But there is still that end feeling that that kid, when she or he picks up that car and moves it or that character and like moves it a little bit and they respond and it feels like you just made that happen, that takes a lot of finessing. And um, I think, you know, so it's a little bit different in that regard. I, I do think in software in general, it's there's two sides of the fence, right? There's like building the product and shipping the product or building the product and moving the product. And moving the product is, a mar- I would say, the marketing side of things, but it's still 50% of that pie. It, right. It's very hard to do that. Um, and it's, I, I agree, though. I agree that it's just as hard as building the product. And what's the point of building a nice product if no one's going to buy it? Or what's the point of having this wicked sales channel if you don't have a product to move? Like, they, well, they, they go hand in hand. You're totally right. And I think what you, what you just hit on is the difference with grad school. Grad school is just one piece of the pie. So, mm. okay, maybe you could argue that if you're trying to get tenure, there's some like marketing you need to do to like get into good conferences and like, you know, you could probably do like growth hacking on your on your paper titles or something like that. I'm sure that there's a whole cottage industry on how to growth hack to be a professor. But I think where you and I self-selected out of the academic stream is because it's all about building without shipping in a way or it's like shipping well that's not true though sorry because like you have to ship for a conference and you have to like i i think there's just there's a different sense of it's almost like you're you're just not playing in the real world the the it's all or it's like you're playing poker with with fake money i think that's the best way i can describe it grad school feels like the stakes are very low (laughs) in there, there's really no risk for you. Whereas when you get into the world that's messy and it's it's all about like opportunity cost and time and money and shipping and competition and and who knows, maybe we just didn't like play the game as much in grad school as some of our I, colleagues yeah. did. But I, 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 I think know. if you play the I, I think if you play the game it and you really really play the game in grad school you're it's a lot of those same things you know like your product is really your papers that you're writing right that's the product the 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 programming or the building of stuff is really um, a means to it's just the vehicle for that end paper that you're going to write and it's a it's just there for you as a research tool um but there's still a lot of that competition that happens you know you want to get into this conference people get pissed at each other because they got a conference out, someone else didn't, people are jealous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot, it's very competitive. And, or you want to get your paper cited as much, uh, more than the other person. Um, but a lot of it is, because you're on your own though, you're, the marketing is really the self-branding. Like you're, right. you're, you are the brand and you're, you right. need to market that, right? And that's where the marketing part comes in. Um, 
so it, it's a it's yeah i think it's a little different but uh it's challenging in a very in its own way it's i think the most challenging part about it was that it's so isolating because yeah. you're on your topic by yourself for so long um that it's a little draining i think um but yeah i don't i don't know man i I think, you know, at Sego, doing product management stuff, I do think I kind of sit in the middle of that. And I sit in the middle of the product and the marketing side. And, you know, you were telling me that story earlier with um, your, your buddy Justin and how, you know, he's super kind of organized. You're not really that organized. And you, you're like, I couldn't see myself as um, you're using like a project manager or something because you're just not organized and uh it's really weird that you know i i've I've, i think i'm the exact same way but at the same time i've like instigated like i've put in place like an agile system at seiko and i run a lot of our projects and i don't know how that happens because i am not the most organized person i think everyone at seiko knows that but i am good at i guess organizing people and i'm good at like um getting to the root of the problems like well, knowing what's important what's not important i think you're selling yourself i think you're a leader i mean i think you're you're just a good like you have a vision i think that's why i always love talking to you about this stuff because i can tell that you 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 have a lot of like you know you know what you want, like you have a sense of taste and you have a sense of vision. And it's funny that that's rare, but it really is rare. And even at Hubba, I find this, I'm relatively new. I've only been there for six months. So a lot of people who have been in this game a lot longer than me, they know a ton more about retail, but I sort of got in there, sized up what I thought was what, listened to the right people, asked the right questions. And I just developed a, I developed like a, a strong vision in my head right or wrong <laughs> for what i think we should be doing based on you know these inputs and like you it's amazing where so many people just don't do that and i think that they would much rather let somebody else do that put their neck out there do the like do that they don't want to do that thinking and you're that kind of thinker therefore you just amass a following you just you don't even need to be given formal authority you will just get people following you so i'm not surprised that you're like running scrums or 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 like visions of products because you just you you were like that in grad school too you've always had that kind of um you know kind of a mind which is uh which is how we got talking to each other every week and how we ended up talking uh for an hour and a half about whatever we talked about today but hey <laughs> we, we, we 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 got we got a but we got to button this up but you did not check in on okay. your on your on your project so let's let's get a quick okay. uh um, let's get let's get a quick check-in and um and i'm not gonna let you skirt out of it because not now your, your check-in is gonna be shorter and i bl like blabbled on for like 10 minutes about adwords so okay let's all no no it was good it's good to talk about the drop shipping stuff it's just uh I, I think it's interesting i think our listeners our one listener will find it interesting um <laughs> <laughs> like I, I gotta get some stats from you after but um yeah okay so i've been writing still i'm polishing up my month four right now um 
what is it, month four? Yeah, month four. And it's coming along. I think it's pretty good. Um, now I, okay, so I was at this conference last week and mm -hmm. it was the Digital Kids Summit. And there was this one guy who was a literary agent. So mm. he was one of the speakers, but basically, you know, you pitch a guy like him to get your book published in with like, I, I forgot what company he was with, but I was like, I'm going to talk to him right now. I'm going to wait till he's done. I'm going to approach him. I'm going to just not hard pitch my book. I'm going to just ask him for advice and subtly pitch my book. Um, I maybe if I were to do it again, I, okay. So I didn't do it because I went outside and someone already was talking to him and this guy talked to him for like an hour and a half. Oh. And uh, he just, I was like, forget it. It, and it was one of those conferences where, you know, there's one giant auditorium and then there's like 15 minute breaks at a time for like two or three breaks straight. He was talking to this guy and the guy just talked him, talked with him through a lot, a lot of these talks that were happening. So I was like, whatever, I'll wait till tomorrow and I'm going to get him tomorrow. Next day he wasn't there and shit. Um, but I'm thinking I have enough content now that I feel I should at least get a measure of how interesting this stuff is in the physical book space. Yeah. Um, so I was going to, I have his Twitter. I was going to just like uh, slide into his DMs there and uh, maybe pitch him something there or just email him and just not really pitch him, but I was going to just ask him, you know, I'm working on this thing. What do you guys, what do you think? Do you think it's interesting? Um, but I don't know. I was going to ask you, you're, you're more, you have more of a marketing mind than I do. And, uh, what would, what, what, what should my pitch look like? Oh man. Should it be a pitch? Maybe it shouldn't be a pitch. Okay. You have, yeah. I got, I got a lot of, I feel like we, I feel like we need to make this, I feel like we might need to, to drag this into next week because I got a lot of got a lot of thoughts on this. Um, how many people were talking to him after the, like did this did this man have a crowd? No, it was just this one guy who just pretty much occupied his whole time, and he was probably like, oh fuck, I either maybe he was really enthralled. He didn't really look that enthralled, but yeah, he had a linger. But like th throughout the conference, did he? Did he have other, um, like, when you saw him, did, did he ever have, like, a, like, if he was just, like, walking the hallways, did, did people... Did he have an entourage? Yeah. No. Ah, damn it. Okay. Because one of the best things to do at conferences is you follow up with people and you pretend like you had a conversation with them at the conference, even though you didn't. Um, this used to be my, my go-to conference move where I would tell a speaker, hey, thanks for that amazing conversation we had at so-and-so where I knew they were, where they had a big crowd of people. Um, mm -hmm. And then they'll never remember you. And it actually is like a good way to like get your foot in the door. And okay. I mean, Sly, Sly. I think, oh yeah, I got a great, uh, I'll tell a great story about that with, uh, with Elon Musk. But the, I think in this case, you want to be, as direct because you're really serious about this i think you want to be as as direct as possible and i don't think you need to really beat around the bush i think you if you legitimately have questions 
um, I think you ask them, but then you very quickly make it known that you're working on something and would love feedback or how does one go about getting feedback? And I think if you can find any kind of a connection point, he might, he might not offer to review it or like to look at it. Cause I'm sure he gets pitched a lot, but mm-hmm. he might pass you off to somebody, which you could then still parlay into a, Hey, I'm about to send this to Sally. Like you said, would love five minutes. I really respect, you know, and like, like that's probably the, the added, like the way that I would go, but I'll tell you what, let me, I feel like I'm not going to do it justice just because my, my brain's not firing right now. Let's, let's kick off with this uh, next week and, um, and I will have, uh, I'll have better, better thoughts for you. All right. All right. Uh, but it's going to happen. I gotta, I, I feel like I need to, I want to reach out to a bunch of people and I'm just going to, I'm just going to spam like a thousand literary agents <laughs> and let's just see what happens. Okay. I definitely have a strong opinion. <laughs> let, let, let's, let, let's talk about that. I don't know if you, uh, we'll, we'll talk. We'll, to be to be continued um but uh yeah well man thanks for the cool. thank, thanks for the chat and we'll uh talk more next week all right man thanks dude all right talk to you soon all right see ya